the most important part of the service has come upon us. When we take God's Word and look to it for worship, worship of Jesus, take it and turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 for me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. That's page 807 in the Blue Bible, if you're following along uh, in the Bible provided in the pew pocket. As we actually begin a series on Christmas, of all things. It's hard to believe that, um, that Christmas is already here, because it seems to me that it's been here for a month already. I remember this year, I went into Target, I think, in the middle of October, and I already saw decorations. I mean, this was before Halloween, and I'm thinking, this is getting ridiculous. And then my own family succumbed to the pressure of an early Christmas, as on November the 1st, the day after Thanksgiving, we put up the Christmas tree. I had at least had to work out a deal with the kids so that we wouldn't get burnt out on the music, saying that we would only listen to Christmas music on the weekends until Thanksgiving, at which time they could listen to it whenever they wanted. But if you follow the tradition of Christmas, you'll notice something extremely fascinating. It used to be something that people celebrated on a day. The idea of trimming the tree, it was like done like Christmas Eve, Christmas night. And then it became a Christmas week. And then it became the month of December. And then it started encroaching on a Black Friday. And then, now, it's in November, well, excuse me, now it's in October, who knows, maybe we're going to have a Christmas quarter in a few months or a few years, but the truth of the matter is we all love this time of year, we can't wait to get to it, and Christmas is as good as it gets until it's over, until it's over. I would liken it to uh, a sugar rush. You jump into this time of year fully excited about the celebration of Christ, of course, and everything that comes along with that. And I don't know how it works for you, but the day after Christmas is over is like the worst day of the year. I find myself lamenting with Elvis, why can't every day be like Christmas? (laughs) Why can't this feeling go on endlessly? I I, I want it to stay forever. And you know what? I realize I've got a major problem, though. If I experience the sugar rush version of Christmas, it makes me wonder if I enjoy Christ more or Christmas more. Am I really celebrating Christ or Christmas? And friends, I think we all battle this. We love the food, we love the friends, we love the presents, we love the nostalgia, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, except for the fact that we should love someone else more. And so I'm declaring war for the next several Sundays, not on Christmas, but on the tendency to celebrate Christmas more than Christ. It's a battle in my own heart. I think it's one that you may experience in and of yourselves. And I, I want it to be my, my pleasure this year to delight in Christ more than I ever have, and not just the periphery. The standard of success for me this year, if, if we've really gone through this thing the way that we need to, we'll actually be able to, on December the 26th, still love Jesus just as much as we did on December the 1st. It's a weighty goal, and the only way that I know how to pursue something like this is through the Word of God. 
The Word of God is absolutely sufficient for fueling our worship for Jesus Christ. And there are a plethora of places to which I could take you to fuel that worship for Jesus. But I want to take you somewhere that's often overlooked. In fact, it's one that people normally just skip right on over. They know it's there, but they just don't think that there's much there. And I'm even going to spend three to four weeks on this one mysterious portion of Scripture. And that is Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, going all the way to the end of chapter 2. Now, what we're going to do over the next few weeks is do an inductive study of Matthew 1, 1 to the end of chapter 2, and actually spend the majority of our time in the very spot that most people ignore. And that is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so I won't even read the entire passage today. You can start to study it ahead this week. All we have time to do today is one verse. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Christ this Christmas. The verse reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a fascinating way to begin this record of Jesus Christ. You see in those opening words there, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. This is basically the origin story of Jesus Christ. And when Matthew is referring to this, he's not talking about the entire book, nor is he talking about just the genealogy in verses 1 through 16. He is particularly beginning his book on the, who Jesus is with this origin story that starts from 1-1 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 2, verse 23. And for him, this is the way to introduce Jesus. This is the way that he could actually present the Christ in an appealing way to an audience that really didn't want to believe in him. What you have is Matthew, as a Jew, writing to his Jewish compatriots, trying to convince them that the Jesus that existed here on the earth during that period of around B.C. 4 to A.D. 30, that Jesus is the very one who they had been anticipating for their entire lives as the Jewish people. And so, though there had been many who had claimed this position before, he's making a case for something radical. And so he begins with an origin story of Jesus, and then he modifies Jesus with several little, and let's do some grammar for a moment, appositives. Appositives. He's saying that this is the origin story of Jesus, but to start off that way is actually to say nothing at all. Though the term Jesus would mean something to you, it didn't mean much to people in the first century because it was one of the most popular names in the book. You know, today we could look on the internet and find most popular baby names of 2019. They could do a most popular baby names of the first century. Not on Google, but you would have to read books of the time and just figure out who gets named the most. You would find it, I think, interesting to know that Jesus was one of the most popular names of the century. Uh, Josephus, for example, 
uses at least 17, refers to 17 different Jesuses in his writings. If you take the high priests that are listed in the first century A.D., of the 12 that are listed, four of them were named Jesus. Jesus was a popular name. And more than anything, it was a popular name because it was wishful thinking. Everybody wanted, every Jewish family was hoping that their son would reflect the salvation of Yahweh. Jesus is just a shortened form of the Old Testament name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And so it was their prayer, it was their wish in naming their child. This names meant something back then. They were hoping that Yahweh would come and save and liberate them and lead them on to victory forever, and they were hoping that even their son may be the one. And yet here, it wasn't just wishful thinking. It was one who would actually become the salvation that they all had longed for. And so the apositives, Jesus, and the way you could interpret it in the original language, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And a positive is just another phrase that you throw alongside a noun to further modify it. It's normally equal to it. So if I were to say, I am Justin, the son of Rodney, glad to have my father here today, the grandson of Bobby, the pastor of Faith Bible Church, that you would know what I would mean by that. If you saw little commas at the end of a sentence, you would know that all of those equal the same thing. But what we have here in this first verse is a modification of who this Jesus is. And we're going to see that it actually is the one that they had expected from long ago. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And to, to unpack the significance of those roles will help us get one step closer to worshiping Christ more than Christmas. And so let's look at these three roles of Jesus today as disclosed in this text, so as to fuel our worship for our Lord Jesus. First of all, what you need to understand is that the origin of Jesus marks the arrival of our rescuer. When you see that word Christ, you should easily think about Jesus being our rescuer. The word Christ literally means the anointed one. Or, to make it even more literal, it means the one smeared with oil. Now, that doesn't mean much to you, especially you essential oils people who smear yourselves with oil all the time. But actually, in the day, uh, the, the smearing of oil was a special ceremony that was reserved for people placed in positions of public prominence in Jerusalem, in Israel. So, for example, priests who represented the people before God, their inauguration, if you will, was symbolically carried out by the smearing of oil. It means that they were specially marked by God, presumably a symbol of the Spirit descending on someone or being upon someone. Uh, you would take prophets, someone who would speak to the people for God. A very special position. How would they be marked? By the smearing of oil. Or you take a king, the most important of the three. The one who would rule on behalf of God, like over the people. And how would he be marked? His inauguration? What was it? It was the smearing of oil. 
And so the anointed one, the, the Christos, the Christ, was anyone who had been anointed with oil, anyone who had been set aside for a special office. And yet what we see here in this particular text is that David, excuse me, Matthew isn't just referring to an anointed one, but the grammar is specific. He is referring to the anointed one. Now you need to like check your, your, your 21st century tendency to think of Jesus Christ as in first name and last name. Uh, Jesus Christ is not the same as like Justin and Harris. Christ is primarily a title. It is a title. It is something that is conveying a special office or role that he would play. This was not just his last name. He was the anointed one, the smeared one, the one with oil. And in particular, he wasn't just one of those. He was the one. There had been a an expectation through the latter periods of Jewish history that there would be one who would in some way, they didn't know exactly what it would look like, but there would be one anointed one above all who would come and right all the wrongs and fix all the problems. There would be, whether he was a prophet, a priest, or a king, or maybe all three, they did not know when you look at the literature, but they were expecting a hero. It's hard to believe, but the Jewish nation has always expected someone to come in and rescue them. You remember those old like movies from the 1920s? I don't know how many iterations of this I've seen. But there's this damsel in distress, she gets tied with a rope, some villain places her on the railroad track, and then the train comes speeding toward her, and the hero comes at the last minute and saves the day. All right, so you got Jerusalem, you got Israel, excuse me, the damsel in distress, they were tied up on the railroad tracks of history, and they were perpetually expecting someone to come and rescue them from them. And that someone was the Christos, that someone was the Christ, the, the anointed one. I mean, like what we think of today as a hero, as a superhero, what seems like so outlandish. Like if we expected like rescue, we think it would come through some type of political means, it would come through a movement, it would come through an army. They actually expected that there would be one individual who would come and save the day, and that was the Christ. And Matthew is saying here, friends, rejoice. The one that I'm telling you about who has originated is indeed that rescuer. He is the one who has saved his people. And so in what way did he actually save them? Well, Matthew 1.21, just look there in your Bibles, will actually explain this, exactly what this Christ would come and save them from. Notice Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, remember, which means Jehovah saves, for he shall save his people from their, what is it? Sins. The thing that they needed to be rescued from was actually sin itself. He's saying that, damsel in distress, meet your hero. Here's the one that will rescue you from the sin that has placed you in such a horrible position. Israel hated the fact that they were dominated politically. They, they couldn't stand the fact that they wore the yoke of Rome. They wanted political liberation for sure. But they knew that at its core, at its base, they were under the dominion of Rome because of their sin. They wanted someone to free them from sin, and this Christ would be that type of rescuer. 
See, friends, I, I, I know that you can make the transfer to yourself this morning and understand and revel in the fact this Christmas that Jesus is your rescuer. But sometimes we want a bigger rescue. Sometimes it's easy for us to think that, oh, rescue from sin. Okay, that's one thing. I'm glad that's, that hypothetical is taken care of. But what we really want to see rescue from is uh, political problems. We want to see rescue from uh, the evils of society. We want to see rescue from a world dominated by sickness and disease. And friends, those other things that you want to see rescue from, please understand me well, they are only the fruit of what is actually at the root of this thing, and that is sin. That is sin. We would long for a rescuer to come and return America to the good old days. But how will America ever get back to the good old days? (laughs) Through the righteousness that can only be provided through our rescuer, Jesus Christ. Do not separate the fruit from the root. He wasn't a Christian, but he made an interesting observation nonetheless. The, The 18th century politician, historian from France had spent his time in America studying why it was such a great country and why things were going as well for the United States as they were. His name was Alexis de Tocqueville. And maybe you've heard this, but his observation, I think, rings true. He says, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. You want to know why this country is at least still in some way so great? And this isn't a sermon on America. It's because of its Christian moorings and foundation that people have found righteousness and rescue from sin in Jesus, and that has set the trajectory of a nation. Friends, when we are longing for a rescuer, we are longing for someone who will fix the root problem, and that is a practical lack of righteousness. And this Christ would meet and remedy that need. He is our rescuer. What are we celebrating at Christmas? Not just the birth of a baby, but the arrival of a rescuer, a hero, someone to save us from our sins. But in this we see not only in this origin of Jesus, the arrival of our rescuer, we also see the arrival of our ruler our ruler. In your text, you notice the word Jesus, and then there's that appositive Christ added on, and then you see the next one, the son of David. The son of David. Now, in what way is the son of David something that would invoke hope? Because there were lots of sons of David. You just heard me praying for that a few minutes ago. Uh, There were a whole heap of them, and not many of them did very much good. Why is this son of David so 
important. It was because from the very beginning, when David took over and was ruling as their second king, but their first one fully anointed by God, the one who was recognized as the promised king, when he took over, there was a special promise associated with his rule that there would be one who would come after him who would perfectly represent that rule and bring, listen to this, and bring the Jewish nation into a new era in which they would rule over the world. And as great as David was, he never brought them to that point. In fact, have you ever noticed that the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, which is all about David, its first half is all about his greatness, 1 Samuel. Second half is all about his demise. The whole point was to say, this is not your ruler. Even from the very beginning, as great as David was, the Jewish people understood that there would have to be one son or descendant greater than David who would actually come. And this person would in need indeed need to be one of his children or his grandchildren. Now, for us as Americans, this sounds ridiculous. Why in the world would the best ruler be one that descends from a particular line? This is what you could look up in history as the divine right of kings. That the idea that the one who was supposed to rule would be related to someone older, some, some other person above them. We have a democratic system in which we think all right, we're going to vote for the best person. Well, for them, they just understood the way that God had set it up. His blessings would be passed through a particular line. That may not be the way you would set it up, but that's the way that God set it up. And they were expecting one to come through the line of David who would lead them to this greatness. You, you see it? You could flip with me if you want. Second Samuel chapter 7, and you'll just read the, the promise of this promised son of David. This one who would right all the wrongs, the one who would finally fix everything. Second Samuel, chapter 7, and then you look in verses 8 through 16. You can just listen if you're not there yet. God is speaking to David, and he says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, uh, he's, he's speaking through, excuse me, Nathan the prophet to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Notice that there will be any opposition. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring or your seed after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice that singular, his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Pause there. Do you see that promise? David wasn't the fulfillment. David and the people were waiting for someone greater than him to actually bring them into worldwide dominance. They were looking for the ruler. Not a ruler, but the ruler. And for that first century audience, reading Matthew's gospel... Matthew's good news 
This was fantastic. I want you to appreciate how odd this would be for you to rejoice in by doing just a brief review of civics. You remember civics? I think you take it in ninth or 10th grade. If you're younger than that and you haven't been there yet, you'll get there. This is government, how governments are run. Now, what we tend to think as Americans is that the best form of government would be what? A democratic republic. That's the way that we've set things up here. The great American experiment is none other than a democratic republic. We get to pick who represents us. We float things over across the pond, and we see how they run it in England these days. And it is a constitutional monarchy. You know what that means? It's like us, but they've got this symbolic head called a queen. And no offense if you're British, but she doesn't really do anything. It's just a figurehead of some kind. But there still is a parliament that helps make decisions, and guess what? They're voted on. They're representatives of the people. And so we think, all right, constitutional monarchy, democratic republic, these are all great forms of rule. You know what we actually fight, though, to do, like, across the world? Is we try to free nations from autocracy and what is called tyranny. We despise, as Americans, fundamentally, we despise the idea of one person being in charge of everything. Now, I'm challenging who you are as an American. Hang with it. What we most fundamentally hate as Americans is for any one person to be absolutely in charge of everyone. We think what's absolutely best is to liberate people by allowing them to be able to choose how they want to run their country. Rule by the people. Do you know what they're celebrating here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? They're celebrating the arrival of an absolute monarchy. A theocratic monarchy. No representative government. Not just a symbolic king or queen. They were actually excited about one person, this one descendant of David, that would come and perfectly rule and reign over them. So often, when we sing and celebrate Jesus being our king, we're normally thinking he's some kind of security guard. By that we mean he works for us and he keeps us safe. And yet what the Bible actually discloses is he is more of a delightful despot. He rules and reigns everything. And yes, he keeps us safe, but yes, he bosses us around in the best of ways and he shows us exactly what we are to do. Now friends, I want you to embrace the goodness of God's rule for a moment. The gospel, the good news, is that one is coming who will rule and reign over us in a way that will lead us into God's good and righteous plan. God's rule in Christ is actually something to be celebrated in the book of Matthew. 
It's saying that he is the son of David. It is saying that he is the great and powerful one. Another famous Christmas text from Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, clarifies this. Isaiah foresaw that a son would be given with the most extravagant titles, and listen to him, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And then listen to this, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding holding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That is what we're celebrating at Christmas. The arrival, not only of a rescuer, but the arrival of a ruler. And it is at this point that I would like to dispel one of the greatest myths in American Christianity, and that is that the notion that somehow Jesus could be our Savior, but not be our Lord. I grew up hearing that. My parents didn't teach me that. This was actually in the Christian school that I was a part of. It was normal speak to actually tell young people, hey, you know what, this is what you need to do. You need to ask Jesus to be your Savior so that you're clear. You get like, get, get to ground zero with God. And then at some point later, if you really want to get serious with Jesus, you're going to make Him your Lord. That's when you get to level two Christianity. Friends, Jesus is Lord. You do not make him that. When you receive his rescue, you also receive his rule. And that dominates every facet of our lives. Listen to this in a delightful way. His rule is good. The way that he calls the shots works out for our best It is a good thing. We sang it earlier today. The the first hymn that, that we sang, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Actually, if you follow the, the normal flow of the Christmas songs, you'll see how over and over again they're celebrating the fact that God's the boss, He's in charge, He's the one that's dominating everything. He's doing this through Jesus. This is good news. This is joy that we've got a boss, not just a security guard. And friends, I I, I want to bring this to bear on some of the most hot-button issues in society at the moment. When we think of Jesus just meek and mild and in a manger, we may forget that He is actually mandating particular things for every one of our lives. He's actually enforcing them. He's expecting them. I thought about this the other day when the kids were at the pool. There's this list of rules at the pool that are supposed to like facilitate everyone's enjoyment. I mean, there's some pretty basic things like don't run. My kids don't get that one. But it's a great rule, right? Because who wants a a busted head on the side of the concrete? I mean, like there's good rules there. But we don't have a lifeguard. So guess what? Tanya and I are the lifeguard. We're the ones that enforce the rules. But you know what we actually have here? We don't just have a list of rules. We actually have an enforcer of the rules. Jesus Christ himself works through his word and through his people to bring that word to bear on them. And he actually expects his people to live in a certain and particular way. What are the hot button issues of society that most people feel uncomfortable with? They don't yet understand the fact that he is actually doing a good thing in this rule. Well, I'll give you a few. Uh, Let's just start off with something as fundamental as gender. The Lord God made certain people to be male and female. 
And as progressive as our society is, and as much as people would like to think that they know a better way, that they know a third gender, the Lord who owns it all actually says, I've made you man, I've made you woman, you have different roles and responsibilities, and guess what? In Genesis 1, he said, this is good. So guess what? You don't even own your body. He owns your body. He owns your masculinity and your femininity. Another hot-button issue where, where the exercise of Jesus' rule is often pushed against is that of sex. We think that sexual gratification is ours. It is for us. It is something that we can find anywhere and with whomever we like when we like. You know what Jesus says? No, you don't. You find sexual gratification in a spouse that you covenant in marriage with for all of life. Let me, let me give you another area. Marriage. As much as we think marriage is about our own personal and individual happiness, Jesus actually says marriage is a lifelong covenant between a heterosexual couple that depicts the, depicts the gospel itself. Lifelong depicts the gospel. And guess what? There's only two escape hatches, if you will, for a marriage. And that is abandonment of an unbelieving spouse and adultery. And just because the marriage doesn't have that spark anymore doesn't mean that you get a free pass. The Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of the universe, says, no, it is forbidden. He dominates marriage. He dominates sex. He dominates gender. He dominates the way we use our money. How how did he say, I mean, there is no way. If you want to, like, tick somebody off, tell them how to spend their money. You ever had that happen? You buy a car? And somebody says, why'd you buy that car? That's kind of expensive. Why didn't you get the cheaper model? (laughs) Who are you to tell me what car to buy? (laughs) You want to get on somebody's nerves? Start asking them how they're spending and critique them for that. And guess what? Jesus tells you and me how to spend our money. He says in Matthew chapter 6 to seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added to you. He actually tells us not to see how much stuff we can heap up for ourselves, but to first invest in his kingdom and then let everything else flow from that. He owns our bank account. He owns our body. He owns our bank account. He owns our marriage relationships. He owns our gender. I'm just listing just a few. And you know what? Matthew recognizes this to be gospel. This is good news. His rule is good. Monogamous marriage is good. Men being men and women being women is good. People finding sexual satisfaction in their spouse alone, that is a good thing. You start opening up that can of worms and see where everything leads, and it is a mess, my friends. The rule of Jesus is a wonderful thing. And so what are we celebrating at Christmas? Not just little Jesus, meek and mild. We're celebrating the arrival The arrival of our rescuer and the arrival of our ruler. And the text gives us one more thing that we're celebrating. One more title of Jesus listed right here at the end of Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. And that is, Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, and interestingly, the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. What does he mean by the son of Abraham? Why is that such a big deal? I mean, we all grew up in Sunday school singing that Abraham had many sons, right? <laughs> We're all a son of Abraham. 
Well, this is extremely helpful, especially for those of you in the congregation this morning who aren't Jewish, which kind of looks like the majority, even though I know it's not everyone. So you may want to pay special attention at this point. Because right now, the terms, the Christ and the Son of David, by the original audience, would have spelled great news for Jewish people. But it wouldn't have been that great if you weren't a Jew. Because the Christ was going to be the rescuer, not just of anybody, but he was going to be the rescuer of the Jewish nation. And the, the son of David, well, I guess you can see the genealogical ties there. He was not just going to be the ruler of the world, he was going to be the ruler of the world through the Jewish people. Hey, let me blow your mind politically one more time. If the Jews would have got it their way, if, let's say, that Jesus would have fully become at that time, in first century Palestine, what they expected him to be, there would be no United States of America. He would be part of an extended Jewish state. And that would be a good thing. Our Savior came into human Jewish flesh. You need to understand that. But listen. His promises were not just reserved for the Jewish people. The blessings of His rescue, the blessings of His rule, would be for all. And that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that we read earlier this morning. You remember it? Let's do a brief review of history. You go to the very first couple chapters of the Bible and God creates a good world and you see that it is the pinnacle of blessing. He pronounces blessing on the entire world in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And we see that mankind overall is blessed. He enjoys the capacity to reproduce, to affect life. Things are good in the garden. And then what happens? Humanity sins. And for the first time, we see on the pages of Scripture the word curse. It repeats itself over and over again. Curse is introduced into the line as a penalty for that sin. And it seems like all is going, pardon the phrase, to hell in a handbasket. I mean, it gets worse from chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse until you get to chapter 12. Get to chapter 12. And now all of a sudden, there's this spark of hope for blessing again for the entire world. And it happens in the most random and strange way. God calls this really random guy out of Ur named Abraham and says, In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. In you, there will be some way in which you will affect, one of your descendants will actually affect blessing not just for your people, but blessing for the entire world. Now, his people would be blessed, but through them there would be a blessing for the entire world. We saw that in our study of Genesis earlier this year. It has been God's intention from the very beginning to work through the Jewish nation to restore blessing to the entire world. And what do we mean by blessing? Friends, blessing is not just beautiful weather outside and enough money to buy Christmas presents. Blessing here is talking about a fundamental restoration of relationship to God. He is smiling upon us as opposed to frowning upon us. And good things come from that. It is relational. Blessing has been restored in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3 says it this way. And this is just the words of the Apostle Paul. Please take it sincerely. It says that every one of us are under a curse because we couldn't obey God's law. 
And yet in Christ, and only in Christ, blessing has been offered. Paul will pick up on this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and say that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. That that for which you most deeply long, that that can only satisfy you, is the blessing of God, and it is offered in Jesus Christ, the Son of Abraham. He was the seed, the descendant, the promised one, Galatians 3.16, that would come and restore blessing to the world. I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving. We didn't. Four of our five children have the flu. I'm currently working on it myself, which is why I'm not shaking anyone's hands. So just brief time out. I will not be standing at the back door. You're welcome. <laughs> but what is Thanksgiving beyond a time of year for us to celebrate our blessings? Let me ask you, when you were reflecting on the goodness of God expressed to you this past Thursday, How many of the blessings that you mentioned were actually those that have been shown to you in or through Christ? It's a normal refrain. Friends, I'm not going to beat you up for this. If you thanked God for just the normal stuff of life, those indeed are, are good gifts from God's gracious hand. But you know that He shows those same gifts to people who are out of Christ as well. Uh, money and health and family. There are many who enjoy those things, indeed. Just an expression of the kindness, the general kindness of God. But did you know that there is a special and eternal kindness that has been shown to only those who are in Christ that will outlast any bank account, outlast any healthy body, outlast any human relationship, outlast any physical building that we may own. And that is the restoration of fellowship with God and Jesus Christ. Because of that, we have innumerable blessings. We enjoy an audience with God. We enjoy forgiveness for sins. We enjoy grace. We enjoy the capacity to be fruitful for the kingdom. I mean, just go looking through, like the book of Ephesians, for example, and start to note and trace the things that God has uniquely given you in Christ. When that day came, that Jesus stepped on the scene, it marked the arrival of that which was inescapable to us, and that was this eternal blessing. That's what we have in Christ. That is what we're celebrating. The, The stuff that transcends time. The stuff that transcends this life, that is what we enjoy in Jesus. Our favor with God is our greatest treasure. And hear me well, friends. If you have not turned from your sin and trusted alone in this Jesus, you do not know His eternal blessing. Indeed, you could still enjoy good food and good health and prosperity, and all of those things, but those will be spent. They have an expiration date. But the eternal blessings that are offered in Jesus Christ transcend time and go into eternity. And that is what happened when Jesus showed up. It was the promise fulfilled of blessing, not just for the Jews, 
but for the nations. And so we see in this one simple little verse, the dawning of a new era. I found it interesting this week that, a little history lesson, that on the front of a dollar bill, excuse me, the back, if you look at it carefully, you'll see the great seal of the United States. Now, most of us never pay attention to those little Latin words that are on the back of a dollar bill, but they actually mean something. So underneath the weird-looking pyramid that probably has something to do with the Freemasons, I have no idea, are these words, Novus Ordo Seclorum. Novus Ordo Seclorum. It it is interesting because it is a line taken from uh, the Roman poet Virgil. Originally, it was written to celebrate, those little lines were written to celebrate, and this is the literal rendering, the dawning of a new era. The dawning of a new era. What they thought is that after Julius Caesar had turned his army upon Rome and basically made himself the emperor of what was a republic, Julius started claiming divine titles for himself. He started to garner more political power, and then his adopted son, Octavian, would then take this to a new level, not only claiming the title Caesar, but then Augustus, the supreme one. Even calling himself, friends, listen to this, this was around the time of the birth of Christ, the Son of God. And his propaganda department was pretty strong. Virgil, the Roman poet, is the one who then writes this celebration of the dawning of the new age. And so that title has always been meant to refer to the golden period, the golden years, the the new and climactic time. And guess what? We, as the United States, had enough hubris to say with the, the writing of the Constitution, we've now reached the dawning of the new age. Whereas Virgil thought the dawning of the new age was in Rome, we thought the dawning of the new age was in Philadelphia, the nation's first capital. At this point, because of our new system of government, we were moving into new territory, uncharted waters. These were the best days. They were right before us. And yet, the Bible tells us a different story. The dawning of the new era didn't begin in Rome. It didn't begin in Philadelphia. It actually began in a little town called Bethlehem. We sing of it, don't we? O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And then listen to this line. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Friends, that is the dawning of a new era. The hopes and fears of all the years. I mean, we're saying like our highest hopes, our deepest fears... Relieved and satisfied at this one little town with this one baby who would then grow. We're saying that this is the dawning of a new era. Yes, friends, that is what we are saying. That is what the gospel is. A new era began with the origin of Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you, as you enter into this season, are you indeed worshiping Him? Or just the holiday surrounding Him? So just enough, worship is a pretty generic word. I Am I not at worship today because I'm at church on a Sunday after Thanksgiving when I could have skipped 
and nobody would have known. Well, you are indeed worshiping here today, but worship is something more fundamental than showing up to a building. Worship actually has to do with the last two lines of those songs, two really simple questions, one for the pessimist, the other for the optimist. What are your deepest fears? What are your highest hopes? What are your deepest fears? What are your highest hopes? For those who worship the risen Christ, for those who have found Jesus to be their Messiah, their deepest fears have been relieved because Christ has absorbed the curse of sin and secured their blessing. And for those who trust in Christ, their their highest hopes are not in some stuff here in this world. But their highest hopes are an eternal relationship with Him, again made possible through this Jesus, this rescuer, this ruler, this blessing. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we hate to admit it, but we, are str- we struggle, we battle sometimes to find blessing in your Son alone. Too often we think of our own fears, that of disease and loneliness and relationships or failing health or declining parents, or sleeplessness, or depression, or whatever. The things that we can see and touch, or those are our greatest fears, and and we forget that we we have been given something eternal in Christ. Lord, forgive us. And for, or finding our hopes in small, temporal, idolatrous things, like money, and success, and children, and retirement, and vacations, and Christmas gifts. Lord, forgive us. Give us, a, give us a bigger view of your Son and what His origin means for us. I pray that it would even dominate our week. Or that we would rejoice and rest in Jesus as our ruler, as our rescuer, as our blessing as we step into the problems of this week. And Father, if there's anyone here who does not yet know the blessing and the rescue and the rule that comes from your Son, I pray that they would know it today. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.